Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. We on? Can you guys hear me like electronically? Okay, good. Going deaf. All right, let's begin today by praying together. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to just come before you today and just acknowledge your greatness and your compassion in sending us your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. We also thank you, Father, for the resurrection, and not, and not only his, but also someday ours. We thank you, Father, for your grace every day. We ask also, Father, today that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct us into your word. We pray also, Father, that we may apply what we learn. The Holy Spirit may guide us and direct us in our walk. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, good morning again, everybody. As we get started today, let me give you a few announcements. Uh, This month, we're featuring as a missionary organization a group called Mission Aviation Fellowship. Mission Aviation Fellowship. Now, their mission in sharing the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ using aviation and technology and using planes and the technology that support them. They do this through that very isolated people who really cannot be reached any other way than by plane, um, maybe physically and spiritually transformed. Their work includes the support of churches in country. They also support and build up local evangelists. They create access to medical care, provide disaster relief, and they also make community development projects possible. And again, these are in some of the most remote places on planet Earth. I want to just uh, tell you again, remind you again about how you can participate. They have an adoption program. It's adopting a plane or missionary or a country even. And they also allow people to go on short-term mission trips so you can experience for yourself the work that they do. They have been in countries including the Congo, Haiti, Indonesia, Lesotho, Mali, and Mozambique. And this morning, I'd just like to show you a picture, a few pictures actually, of uh, what they're doing in the Moy people. This is in Papua, Indonesia. And uh, this is actually work that's being done among, uh, by two missionaries, Stephen and Carolyn Crockett. And I'm just going to explain to you, I just picked the pictures that have planes in them. So the first one is parents carrying their children. And you can see the plane in the background. This is, of course, the when the planes arrive for all kinds of important and necessary things, including Bibles and uh, food, medicine, and so forth. They um, take care of the medical needs of the Moy people. They also have a school and a clinic in their village. They also have Christian nurses and teachers. The airstrip in the Moy village, right there it is, provides access so that food and supplies, education, medicine, and health care can arrive. And here's a picture of them unloading those things as, uh, as the plane is there. So the point of this all is that uh, there are places in the world that can only be reached by airplane. And uh, without uh, this kind of a missionary organization, they would never actually probably be able to hear the gospel. And so it's important work, as always. We would ask you to please pray for them and support them in any way that you can. Their website is really simple, www.maf.org www.maf.org. Whoops. I'd also this morning like to thank Steve Pomeroy for preaching last Sunday. I understand he did a great job. It's okay to clap in church, yeah. 
Also want to give you some information on our schedule. Uh, we will be on summer break from Monday, August 5th, Monday, August 5th, through Sunday, August 11th. Okay, so that week in, in August, from Monday the 5th through Sunday the 11th. Next Sunday also, we will have outreach, and that's always the second Sunday of the month. And then finally, if anybody needs a Bible, we do have them in the back, and you can just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. The title of today's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it is this, Remain in the condition in which you were called. Remain in the condition in which you are called, were called. We're going to see how this applies to married life. We're going to see how this applies to racial and uh, religious issues, and then also in terms of slavery and servitude. So those were all big issues back in the time when Paul uh, was writing to the church at Corinth, and they have modern analogs. We don't necessarily um, divide on the basis of circumcision anymore. Okay, but there are other ways in which that becomes sort of the equivalent in terms of certain external signs being used as the basis for um, evaluating somebody's spirituality, for example. Okay, let's read the passage this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, all right, if you could turn now to verse 10, and that's where we'll begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Up until this point in chapter 7, Paul has been dealing with the issue of celibacy, if you remember from the last time, and how that applies, that that there are some advantages to it, but not everybody's called to it, and those who are married or stay married, and that those who are married are to have um, sexual relations with one another on a regular basis. We saw all that last week. No, last time we were here, um, I was here. So this week, we're going to see how he continues and where he goes next. Let's look at it now, 1 Corinthians 7.10. But to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, these are, as we shall see, married people where one one of the spouses is a believer and the other one isn't. We'll see that. But to the rest of those who are married but are not both believers, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And here's the main point of this section. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as the Lord, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. In other words, the way in which you've been assigned, when you become a believer, when you're called, as God has called you, stay in that manner and walk in that manner. Don't seek to to have your condition, your status, your situation change as if that's going to please God in some way. And so I direct in all the churches... Was any man called when he was already circumcised? A Jewish man. He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? A Gentile. 
he is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man, again, here's the main point again. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Were you in servitude in the manner in which slavery was practiced at that time? Were you in servitude? Don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay? But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. In other words, it is better to be free than to be in servitude. But if that's your state in life, remain there. Don't seek yourself to try to create a situation where you're going to leave that state. If, if God frees you, great. If, you're, if the one that you're working for says, you, okay, I want to now allow you to be free, great. Okay. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, you may be a slave as far as the world is concerned, but as far as the Lord is concerned, you have freedom. Now, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. And indeed, we all are. We're all Christ's servants, Christ's slaves. So he's basically saying that, you know what, this issue of slavery and servitude, it has a different approach for different people. Some people are, are, are clear about the fact that they're in a physical position of servitude. But what they may not realize is that they have freedom in Christ. Some understand and and take advantage of the fact that they're free of any servitude. However, they must not forget that they are slaves of Christ. And and by the way, we're all both of those things, aren't we? We have freedom in Christ, freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from the bondage of the law. But also at the same time, Christ is our Lord. We are Christ's slave. We are in service to him. We owe everything to him. Okay. And that's what's important, more important than our physical state in life. We shouldn't be focusing on our physical situation. And today, that would not necessarily be servitude the way it was practiced then, but it's instead our social status, our economic status. Don't seek to change that as if somehow changing that is important to to your practicing Christianity. It's not. What's important? The things of the heart that you understand that you have freedom in Christ. That you understand that the only person or thing that you should be seeing yourselves as a slave of is Christ. Then he goes on. You were bought with a price at the cross. Do not become slaves of men. Do not become slaves of men. You are free in Christ. Do not turn around and put yourself in servitude. Now we're talking about mentally and spiritually now, all right, of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. The third time that Paul states the main point of this passage. What I'd like to do now is just give you an outline of the places that that Paul goes in this part of 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 10 to 11, he deals with the issue of married Christians divorcing. Verses 10 and 11, he deals with the issue of married Christians divorcing. Here, we're going to see this in a moment. As always, there's a context. So, so we're going to see the context, understand what is being said here and what's not being said. Okay. Verses 12 through 16, are what he would call mixed marriages. Now, of course, in our day and age, or not anymore, but when I was a kid growing up, a mixed marriage had to do with different races. Matter of fact, the generation before I lived, a mixed marriage was different ethnicities. 
I remember my, my parents, I remember my grandmother saying to my mother that you're the, you're, you're the only pure family because you're both Irish. And that was really the situation that they saw. If, you married, if an Irishman married an Italian, that was like a problem, and probably vice versa. I wasn't an Italian family, but I don't know. So there's always, you know, people seeing marriages as mixed. Well, here, one thing that never changes is this kind of mixed marriage, because what does it mean? It's a, it's a believer and an unbeliever. That's the only mixed marriage that the Lord was watching, right? Race is not an issue. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. But the only issue is believing or not believing. So in verses 12 to 16, he's dealing with mixed marriages, and they're breaking up, and he has to deal with that. Okay. Verse 17, as we've already seen, is the main point. It's the main point, and he states it. As is so often the case in the Word of God, the main point, the most important thing in a section of the Word of God is repeated. Let me repeat. The most important thing in the Word of God, a section of it, is repeated. Repeated. You'll see that, by the way, for example, in Romans chapter 3 and 4, where the the issue is justification by faith. He says it three or four times, because it's important. Here, the main point is that each one of us is to remain in the condition in which we were called. And he says that for the first time in verse 17. As God has called each in this manner, let him walk. Now, verses 18 and 19 deal with the issue of the time, which was circumcision. Again, that's not an issue for us. As a matter of fact, it's not an issue at all for the church. Because Paul will say in this section, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. See, in that day and age, the Jewish people thought they were superior because they were circumcised. It was something that Abraham did. It was an outward sign of internal faith. And they thought they were better because they were circumcised. Okay. On the other hand, the Gentiles... They thought they were better, and we'll see why in a minute, okay? And so the Paul is saying, neither one of you is better. Stop making an issue of where you came from. That's what he's going to talk about in 18 and 19. Then in verse 20, he repeats the main point. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Verse 20, the main point again. Verses 21 to 23, he deals with the issue of slave and free. Slavery and freedom. And as we've seen, he deals with it in two ways the physical side, and the spiritual side. Okay. And then to end it up, the third time, he states the main point. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So that's the outline. And I wanted you to see that, basically so that you see that the main point is repeated three times. And it's in between every subject that, he's, that he re- deals with. Right? He's dealing with marriage in 10 through 16, and then he says the main point. He deals with circumcision, and then he says the main point. He deals with slavery and freedom, and again, one more time, repeats and reminds us of the main point, which again is what? Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So the main point of chapter 7, this section of it, 10 through 24, is stated three times. Verse 17 Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Verse 20 restates the main point. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And verse 24 says it a third time. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. 
Now, why am I saying that? Why am I highlighting the main point? Well, because it's the main point. But in addition to that, we'll see this in a second. People can get stuck in between the main point. We're going to see that people will realize, read 10 and 11, and they'll stop there because they're all worked up about it. Now, there are things being taught in 10 and 11, and we should not ignore it. But we need to see it in the context, the main point. Each one is to remain in that situation, that condition in which he was called. So let's start now with verse 10, and we'll work through this section together. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Many people read or hear these first two verses, and immediately they freak out. That's it. They're all emotional about it. They're upset about it, and that's it. Now, either it's the guilt routine for some. Oh, my gosh, I I divorced my spouse. God is angry with me. I can never be what other people are in the church. That's one place that people go. If this has been something that you fell into, then, oh, boy. Now, there's another thing here, which, which, which other people who haven't committed that particular sin fall into, and that's the legalism routine. See, there are two, appro- two reactions that people can have to this passage. What's the legalism routine? I knew it. Divorce is wrong, 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 and I would never. Right? That's the legalism routine. Well, both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. God has not called us to slavery, but to freedom. And believe me, if you're in, in, the, in the cycle of legalism, you're in slavery. You're in slavery to, to, to you'd be your judgmental self, which is a horrible part of you. All of us would be better if we were freed up completely, completely from that tendency to judge and be legalistic. And those are the two reactions that many people have to these first two verses. By the way, while we're here, this is a point I want to make today. Guilt and legalism are two sides of the same coin. They don't seem like it. They seem like opposites, don't they? One person is over here feeling guilty about what they did. Another person over here is putting down the one who did it. They seem like opposites, but they are not. They are two sides of the same same coin. You see, if you're filled with guilt today, then you are filled with legalism. Let me say that again. If you are filled with guilt, then you are filled with legalism. Why is that? Well, here's why. When, first of all, when you feel guilty about something you did, you will usually look for some kind of legal rationale that will excuse your behavior. You may start to treat the Word of God in a legalistic way and say, well, you know what, if I go to this verse, well, then I can excuse my behavior, right? That's a legalistic approach to the Word of God. So guilt can spawn legalism. Now flip it around. Because here's the other side of it. When you judge another, that judgment will come back to you. Your standards of judgment that you apply to others, you will apply to yourself. And so the more judgmental you are, it turns out the more guilt you live in. Why? Because you know why? You will feel guilty. And here's why. A legalistic person, mark it down, will be full of guilt. Here's why. We know more about our own sins than about anybody else's sins. So if we have this legalistic standard by which we're evaluating others and judging life, then you mark it down, that same standard will come back to us. 
That's what Jesus said, right? Why are you trying to take out the splinter in another man's eye when you have a log in your own eye? You see it? When you are judgmental, that same standard by which you're evaluating and condemning others remains in your heart and you can mark it down and you will turn it against yourself when you commit the similar sins. You may not, you may not show it, but you can't avoid it. It's in there. It's in your heart. It is going to, do, going to work on you, making you feel guilty. Some people, by the way, react to that guilt by being worse in their legalism. How many times have we seen people, pastors maybe, political people, who have spent a career putting down, judging, condemning a certain manner of life, and only to find out that it comes out that they were engaging in that same sin? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Guilt and legalism go together. Okay. Now, we just saw the two, path, two verses, 10 and 11. To the married, Paul says, you know what? This isn't really me. This is the Lord saying this. The wife shouldn't leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. There are those two verses. That, those two verses create a lot of guilt and a lot of legalism. But let's do what we have to always do. When we're understanding the word of God, when we come, come, come upon a passage that disturbs us, that we can't quite get our arms around, what do we do about it? Check out the neighborhood. Right? Check out the neighborhood. Understand what came before and what comes after. That sets the context for this passage. You know, no man is a rock, right? No man is an island. Well, no passage of Scripture is an island either. It, it is found, that's why it's a mistake not to read the whole chapter, or even the whole book, when you're studying a passage. Yes, it may take a little more time, but you'll, you'll have a much better understanding of what's being said when you do that. So, let's talk a little bit about the context. What comes before verses 10 and 11? The subject of celibacy. Remember the subject we were on last time I was teaching, before, before Steve gave that great teaching on First Peter. It was celibacy. What is celibacy? Celibacy is saying, I'm not going to have sex. That's what celibacy is. And Paul said, there are some advantages to that if you've been given that gift, but most have not been given that gift. Remember, most have rather strong sexual urges and romantic urges, if you want to call them that, desire to be married, desire to have children. And for them, it's better to marry, right? But there are some, a minority, who have been, gift, have been gifted. Now, remember, it's not magic. They've been gifted with a less of a desire for that or maybe no desire. And as a, so that gives them the opportunity to live a celibate life. There are advantages to that because you're undistracted. A man who is married has to be in the world working, has to be taking care of his wife, taking care of his children. That takes a lot of time and resources, right? The unmarried don't have all of that that they have to deal with. Therefore, they have more time and energy and resources to devote to the things of God. One is not better than the other. God says, look, if you're a married man or a married woman and you're abandoning and ignoring your family, you are worse in that behavior than an unbeliever. So it's, it is both are gifts. They're just different. But that was the subject in verses 1 to, to, to 9. Celibacy and how that works in, in married people and so forth. All right, so park that thought. That comes before 10 and 11, dealing with the married and that the husband shouldn't divorce his wife and that the wife shouldn't leave her husband. What comes after? Well, 
We read it already a couple of times this morning. In fact, more than that, we saw the, the three times the main point of verses uh, 10 to 24 is repeated. What is it? The principle of remaining in the condition in which you were called. What does that mean? It means that most people, most adults, were called when they were married. What are you to do? Remain in the condition in which you were called, married. Okay? Some were called when they were celibate. Remain in the condition in which you were called. Remain celibate. Right? If you, if you were, if you, if you, when you were called, you were Jewish. Don't seek to get out of that identity and somehow or think that there's something wrong with the fact that you understood that circumcision was an outward sign of an inward faith. Right? Don't, cha- don't change that about you. Right? If you're a Gentile, don't panic and think, wow, you know, I never realized that the, that the real God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I better become Jewish. I better be circumcised. No. Remain in the condition in which you were called. That's the principle of this section of the Word of God. So what does all of this tell us? What is the fact that this passage, 10 and 11, comes after a discussion about celibacy and before a a, a presentation of the principle that we should remain in the condition in which we are called? What do those two things tell us? Well, here's the first thing. Clearly, if Paul is discussing, if Paul is taking 11 verses of Scripture to say, remain in the condition in which you are called, why do you think he's saying that? The answer is simple. Many people in the church at Corinth were about to bail out of the situation, the condition in which they were called. That's why he has to address it. For whatever reason, and we'll look at some of these reasons in a minute, they figured that somehow they have, things have to change. A lot of believers go through that. New Christians go through it. A lot of things have to change. Wherever I was before, it must have been wrong, and i got to go in a different place now. Right? Or you get to a certain point and you understand that God is calling you to a certain life, a certain gift that you have. You know, this is particularly common among men who have communication gifts. And they think somehow that they have to totally change their status now that they realize they have that gift. And that's not what God is ever saying. He's saying what? Remain in the condition in which you are called. And he has to say it three times here because there were many people at that time in the church at Corinth They were tempted to get out of, bail out of the situation in which they were called. One of those conditions was marriage. Marriage. Now, why do you think that there were people in Corinth, married people, that sought to bail out of the condition of being married? It's not what you might think. It's not that they were all dissatisfied with their spouses. Because let's face it, we're not all dissatisfied with our spouses at the same time. Usually, right? Usually, if there's a whole bunch of people doing something, there's another driving force besides what you might think. And that's exactly true. You see, remember, you can't forget. This is why we always have to look at what's come before and what's coming after. What was Paul dealing with in the first four chapters of the letter of 1 Corinthians? And the answer is divisions, rivalries, right? That was the source of what we're dealing with today. I'll explain this to you. See, there were factions, parties within the church. Remember, we talked about the celibacy party a couple of weeks ago. And each of those parties basically was saying something like this. We're better. And you need to be like us. We're Jewish. We're better. And you need to be like us. 
We're entrepreneurs. You're slaves. We're better. You need to be like us. We're celibate. You're married. We're better. You need to be like us. So if somebody is under that kind of pressure as a married person, in addition to the, to the back and forth, the struggles, the difficulties that any marriage has, now all of a sudden this is additional pressure saying if you really want to be growing in the spiritual life, you've got to be celibate. So what does that tend to do? It tends to say, well, I'm having trouble in my marriage at times anyway, and now I have permission to leave because... It, but these people are telling me that it's better spiritually to be separated from your spouse than to remain. So that's why Paul has to repeat something three times. What is it? Remain in the condition in which you were called. Don't break up your marriage thinking that somehow that's going to make you more spiritual. It's not. Not at all. The opposite. So again, you have the celibacy party. Celibacy for them is next to godliness. You know, not cleanliness, but celibacy. Ladies, you need to leave your husbands. You know what? We're married to believers. See, we're, we're what God likes in a marriage, you know. We're glorifying God in our marriage. So you know what? If you're married to an unbeliever, you've got to get out of that. You've got to divorce your spouse and marry a Christian. Well, we're Gentiles. Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles. We're Paul. Jews, you need to get uncircumcised. We'll deal with that in a minute because I know you're probably thinking... How does that actually work? We're Jews. We're the chosen people of God. Gentiles, you better get circumcised. See, this is some of the things that the rivalries and the divisions and the parties in Corinth were doing to one another. We're free men. We're able to live in the liberty. You heard about the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus? Well, we can actually live that way because we're freed men. We're entrepreneurs. We can live in that liberty that Christ secured for us. So slaves, you can't. And so you better get your freedom. So people were bailing out under the mistaken belief that, you, that they were going to glorify God when they did it. But here's the thing. God doesn't pay attention to this because this applies to every one of us. God doesn't want us to change our situation in order to please him. Let me repeat. God doesn't want us to change our situation in order to please him. There are those who are married and have children, and they look at unmarried evangelists, and they say, I feel like I'm less of a Christian because I'm not an evangelist, so I better split up with my wife and then go live the evangelist life. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. You should what? Remain in the condition in which you were called. God doesn't want us to change our situation in order to please him. You see, he doesn't need us to do that. Why? Because he'll work with us just the way we are. See, it doesn't mean that we don't have to change on the inside. Of course we do. But we don't have to change on the outside. God will take you in your situation in life, in your condition, in your job, in your marriage status, and he'll work with you. He'll work on you. But he doesn't want you to be thinking, well, I've got to do that. I've got to change everything up in my life, and then God will work with me. No, God says, remain in the condition in which you were called. That's just fine. Now, I'll work with you there. Okay. And again, that's the main point of verses 11 to 24. Keep repeating that. But again, verses 10 and 11, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Many of them were tempted to, some of them already had, but if she does leave, 
she must remain unmarried. Oh, or else be reconciled to her husband. Oh, that's what God wants. And the husband shouldn't divorce his wife. Now notice also that most of these two verses deal with the wives. It's kind of interesting. You know, all of verse 10 and half of verse 11 deal with the wives. The wife shouldn't leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then the husband gets a briefer treatment, but should not divorce his wife. You see, another thing that was causing these marital breakups had to do with wives who took their liberty in Christ too far. They took it too far. Remember we saw in the first part of this chapter how it was revolutionary for its time, but Paul was dealing with the husband and the wife as equals, remember? As complementary, as this applies to both of you, right? Both of you, you you know, the the wife's body is the property of the husband. Oh, and by the way, the husband's body is the property of the wife. Unfortunately, you can take that too far. By the way, Paul's not only going to deal with it here, as he has to, but he'll deal with it again in chapter 11 in terms of the worship service and how women there were taking their liberties in a bad way. Okay. Now, a couple of more points about these two verses, and then we'll move on. The first, I want you to notice how brief it is. What do I mean by that? The subject of couples, Christian couples splitting up, gets two verses, only two. Right? Don't miss that. Two verses. Right? First Corinthians is a long letter. This issue of Christian couples splitting up gets two verses. In other words, it's not a complete treatment of the subject at all. And that's even more of a reason why you've got to put it in context. Right? Because you only get two verses. What does this mean? How do we understand it? That's the first thing. By the way, how do we compare that to other things that Paul was dealing with, upset about in the letter? Well, let me just remind you of a couple. Remember, two verses for married couples splitting up. Remember lawsuits? How many verses did that get? Eight. Eight verses two. So what do you think Paul had to deal with in a stronger way? Married couples splitting up or lawsuits? Lawsuits. This is simple math, right? Remember the man who had his father's wife? 13 verses. A whole chapter on that and on the response that the church had to that. That was 13 verses. Paul used strong language there, as he did with the lawsuits as well. We'll see that in a second. Not only that, oops, it's still on that. Divisions in the church receive what? Four chapters. I want you to think about that. Again, it's all con- this is not saying that there's nothing wrong with divorce and remarriage. We'll see that in a second. Of course there is. That's a sin. It's not the only one, you see. And in terms of relative issue, relative concern and need to train and discipline and educate, it's really small in connection with these other things. Lawsuits, the man who had his father's wife, and divisions in the church. The second thing that you need to notice about these two verses is that there are no warnings given. There's no, if you continue in this, this will happen to you. There's no punishment that's meted out. I'm coming with the rod for any married couple who splits up. Not there. Not there. There's no threat that God will destroy anybody like he did when he talked about those who would destroy the church. No mention of Paul bringing the rod. No delivering over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
No command to remove the wicked person from among yourselves. We'll see a little bit more about that in a minute. In other words, the church is not commanded in, in, in terms of the issue of married couples splitting up. If anybody does it, you don't remove that wicked person from the church. Nope. He doesn't say that about this issue. Doesn't even reference their shame. And again, there's no punishment. By the way, I want to say something. In view of what we just saw in terms of what gets stern warnings and punishments and what doesn't, this calls into question the practice of exercising church discipline on the divorced and remarried. Because Paul doesn't do that. He, now think about it. If you were going to exercise church discipline, these are the places you should start. People who are involved in lawsuits against brethren. Obviously a man who had his father's wife and was boasting about it, but also churches that put up with that behavior. And most importantly, those who would cause divisions in the church. Those are the ones who really need to be dealt with by the congregation. Not not said. Now, I'm not saying that this is okay. Of course it's not. I'm just saying that we have to look at things in a, in a, in a prioritized form. If we're going to go after married couples who divorce and remarry, then we better go after people who are causing divisions in the church, shouldn't we? And that should be first. Paul devotes four chapters to that. But again, here's the balance. Please don't misunderstand here. This is not to say that divorcing a spouse and marrying Another person is not a sin. It is. Jesus, in fact, calls it adultery. And adultery is a sin. He calls it adultery in Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. We're not going to go there, but you can read it. And by the way, you know, when Paul writes in verse 11, verse 10, he says, the Lord gives these instructions. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that when Jesus walked the earth, he gave this instruction to the disciples, as well as to the Pharisees. So, so when you divorce somebody and remarry, that's a sin. When you take your brother to court in, in, a, in, a, in an unbelieving court, that's a sin. When you're causing divisions in the church, that's a sin, right? But somehow, I don't know how, but somehow we gravitate towards condemning people that are involved in sexual sin. They're sins. Please don't misunderstand me. But why do we do that? I don't know the answer to that, actually. But again, we're, not to, we're supposed to focus and orient to God's word on these matters, to God's word. Okay, let's continue. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. We're going to read from 12 to 16 now. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, I don't want to break up with you. He must not divorce her. He must not. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Why? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. It is better for them that they stay, that they have a Christian partner. Okay. And the children, otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. How are they ever going to grow up in the Lord if they don't have any parent who's a believer in Christ? No. Stay, stay, stay. Only condition under which you can leave is if the unbelieving one leaves you first. Okay? Then let him leave. The brother or sister is not in a bondage 
In such cases, the Lord God has called us to peace. Be at peace, understanding that if they leave you, then you're not under bondage in that marriage any longer. For how do you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? It's one of the best opportunities for a person to become a believer in Christ is to have a husband or a wife who's already a believer in Christ. Why? Because that's a close perhaps the closest human relationship that you have. You're there with them every day. You have an opportunity to see what it means to be a Christian, how they treat you and so forth. They have an opportunity to believe if you stay. Oh, husband, do you know? whether? Or husband, how do you know whether you'll save your wife? Now again, these verses instruct Christians who are married to unbelievers. Married to unbelievers. Now, Paul says, he says this, not the Lord, not because this isn't as important an instruction, but very simply, the Lord didn't deal with this situation in his teachings when he was um, here. That's all that means. Now, the message, the first message here in verses 12 to 13 is really simple. If a Christian is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever wishes to stay married, then stay married. If a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever wishes to stay married. I don't want to, I want to stay married to you. And you stay married with that person. Now, verse 14. This is one that causes a lot of confusion, of course. A lot of people scratch their head. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. This does not mean that if you're married to a Christian, you're automatically saved. Some people misunderstand that. It just means that they're sanctified. They're in the presence of a Christian spouse. Okay? That, that, that's what it's talking about. Sanctified. And in the same way, the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Basically, this is the principle. Oops. I guess I didn't put that principle in there. Anyway, here's the principle. If a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and that, um, no, this is the next one. If one of the spouses is a Christian, it's a Christian home. Let me say that again. If one of the spouses is a Christian, it's a Christian home. God considers that family to be a Christian family. Not that they're all believers in Christ, but he considers that to be a family that is set apart for his purposes. God can work with a family that has one unbeliever and one believer. And again, he would rather the believer stay. That's going to be the, how he's going to work on the rest of the members of the family is through the believing wife or the believing husband. All right. Verse 15, finally. Well, again, no, I'm going to say this again. I want to reinforce it. Here's the reason. Perhaps the unbelieving husband or wife will actually be brought to Christ by your loving, gracious, respectful behavior. That's verse 16. Or how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, it is true, as verse 15 teaches, that if the unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to be married to you, the Christian should allow them to leave and no longer consider themselves bound, married to that unbeliever. But that's not the ideal situation. God wants them to stay. Because perhaps that unbelieving husband or wife will be brought to Christ by your loving and gracious and respectful behavior. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 to see about this. 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 2. 
Again, if, if you're married to an unbeliever, you should consider that unbeliever to be very graced out by the Lord. It would be far worse if they were both unbelievers. Why? Because of one of the best opportunities that somebody can have to become a believer is if their husband or wife is already a believer. That's one of the best opportunities that they have. And Peter talks about this. Slightly different angle, but it's the same principle. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, unbelieving husband has unbelieving friends who are married to unbelieving women, and they watch and they see the behavior of those women with regard to their husbands. Then they go home and they look at their own wife. And they see there's something totally different. She is voluntarily being submissive to his leadership in the home. Believe me, the unbelieving wives aren't doing that. He he sees that, you know, my wife doesn't just lecture to me. In fact, she doesn't do that. I'm I'm really surprised by that. It would seem to me that, that she would be telling me all the time, that she would be pointing out my faults according to the word of God. She never does that. All she does is behave in a chaste and respectful way. And that is what it is that will win over a husband to the Lord, to the word of God. So if you're married to an unbeliever, take heart. You are definitely not a second-class Christian. Never let anybody look down on you for that. Above all else, do not believe the lie that you'd be better off without your husband or wife. That's a lie. Stay with them. Or that the lie that staying with them somehow will hinder your growth. Or that your marriage can't glorify God. These are all lies. These are all lies. We know that because no. The Lord says, I want you to stay with them. He must have a reason for that. And he must say that that's your condition in which you were called. Remain in that condition. I can work with that. In fact, I would rather have you there, much rather than have you removed from your husband, removed from your children. That would be the worst thing for them, and I don't want that for them. All right, back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, as we continue here. He's now done with the subject of marriage and splitting up, right? Which he dealt with from verses 10 through 16. So what do we get at the end of each of these sections? The main point, right? We saw this already. Only as the Lord is assigned to each one in their marital situation now in context, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. The main point of the section. In other words, whatever your marital status was, when you were saved, that is where the Lord has put you. Let me say that again. Whatever your marital status was when you were saved, that is where the Lord has put you. Don't try to change it. Don't try to change it. Okay. Some of you have been gifted with the gift of celibacy. Don't try to change it. Some of you are in a marriage. Don't try to change it, even if you're married to an unbeliever. Don't try to change it. That's where the Lord has put you. He can work with you in that area. He will work with you with just the way you are in that situation. All right, let's look at 18 through 20 next. He's going to change subjects now. He's going to change from marriage to circumcision. Okay, remember, we'll talk about circumcision in a minute. 
was any man called while he was, when he was already circumcised? In, that, in this day and age, that meant he was Jewish. He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision, Gentile? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. If, if a Jew is circumcised, but he's uncircumcised in his heart, that's what really matters. It's not a matter of the flesh, but of the heart and of the spirit. Same thing with one who is uncircumcised. If one is uncircumcised, but is keeping the commandment of God, by the way, which is to love one another and love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, that's the circumcision that matters. He's circumcised in his heart. Now, when it says, if you're already circumcised, you are not to become uncircumcised. Here's the deal. I'm not going to go into graphic detail about all this. There was a medical procedure back then that could make a circumcised male uncircumcised again. So this is not, this is not just symbolic. It actually did occur. Okay. There were, I guess those in situations, and think about it, in the Gentile world where they didn't want people to know they were Jewish. So what did they do? They had an operation so that they would look and appear uncircumcised. Now remember, or if you haven't learned this before, circumcision was required of all male Jews who are under the law. Under the law. I say that because remember, when you become a believer in Christ, you're no longer under the law. Okay. But under the law, male Jews are required to be circumcised. Why? It was an outward sign. It was, after all, that's what it is. It's an outward sign. It's something about your body. Why? It's supposed to indicate an inward faith. An inward faith. Please turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. <coughs> Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward faith. Abraham was circumcised, which was a sign of the faith he had while he was uncircumcised. A sign of faith. Galatians 5, 6. So, so what matters though? Galatians 5, 6. What, what really matters to God? Is it the physical sign or is it the faith in the heart? The faith in the heart. That's all. Remember, you guys look at appearances, but God looks at the heart always. See, we're too hung up very often on the appearances. On the so-called signs, you know, that's why I have to deal with Lordship Salvation on a, on a regular basis, unfortunately, because why? They're looking for signs that, oh, that person is saved because I now have a sign about their behavior or what, whatever it might be. No, God looks at the heart. That's what matters to God. Faith in the heart matters to God. Look at Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, Christians now, believers, neither circumcision now, uncircumcision means what? Anything. It doesn't mean a thing. What does matter? Faith in the heart. Love in the heart. That's what matters to God. Keeping the commandments of God is what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 7. To love God. Uh, love one another. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Not without circumcision, it's impossible to please God. And let me throw this in there. Not without water baptism, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say that. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Circumcision, nothing. Uncircumcision doesn't mean a thing. But faith working through love, that's what matters. 
In other words, circumcision has no significance for the church. Okay? Oops. Just as earlier... Oh, no. Verse, let's read verse... Hold off for a minute. Let me just say this. It's in, it's in, uh, just as Paul earlier told the church... Remember this, in chapter 1, he told the church in chapter 1, please don't make baptism an issue. Because they were. They were making who baptized who a big issue. He says, don't make baptism an issue. Why? What matters is what's in the heart. What matters is faith and love. Here he says the same thing about circumcision. Don't make that the issue. That's an outward indication of faith under the law. It's, it's not of any significance for the church. All right. Oops. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to keep going in verse 20 now. Verse 20. We've just seen Paul deal with circumcision. He's done now in verse 19 with circumcision. 1 Corinthians 7.20. What do we get? Again, we get the the main point. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Here he's dealing with circumcision. Today, we would deal with that as our, our background, our ethnic background, all those different things that have to do with what makes us, you know, who we are according to the world, right? Don't change any of that. You don't have to change your appearance, you know? Some people think when they become a Christian that they have to, you know, change their appearance. They have to dress a certain way. They have to, the men have to maybe, you know, shave their head or, you know, or pastors running into the same issue. You know, I, I was in a situation where everybody got, who got ordained under a certain uh, leader then had a look just like him, you know, changing their appearance because they thought that was pleasing to God. It's not. That's not the issue. Remain in the condition in which you were called. All right, finally, all right, Paul addresses the issue of servitude. He's addressed marriage, circumcision, and now servitude. I use the word servitude because slavery in, the, in that time, isn't the same as what we think of as chattel slavery in the United States, which was far worse, okay? It was more of a fact that you were poor and you attached yourself to somebody so that you would be able to live in a certain, you know, be able to have, be fed and all that thing. And then you'd, sometimes it just for a term, a period of time. Sometimes it was, um, you know, perpetual. But in every, any event, it's not the same as what, what, what chattel slavery was a horrible, sinful situation in, in America until the Civil War. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. God would rather, in this case, he actually rather would see you free. But if you're not, don't worry about it. Don't think that there's something wrong with you, that you're lesser than anybody else in the congregation. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. We're all free men in Christ. We're all the, Christ, the slave of Christ. You were bought with a price at the cross of the blood. Do not become the slaves of men. Don't do it. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. There's the message again, third time. So now this issue of servitude back then, today that would be relevant would be our economic status, our social status. He's saying don't seek to change that, thinking that that somehow pleases God. Remain in the situation in which you were called. Maybe, maybe you're poor, and maybe you feel insecure about the fact that you can't supply 
funds the same way a rich person can to the the efforts of the church. Don't make that an issue. Don't feel inferior because of that. Maybe your social situation wasn't quite as good as others that are in the congregation. Don't put yourself down. Don't let anybody else do it either. And by the way, without a doubt, the rich people in the church at Corinth were totally looking down at the poor members of that church. They were entrepreneurs, businessmen, and they thought little of the slaves. They thought that they were nothing. That maybe, you know, that they were a third class, fourth class, not worthy to be considered. That's what he's dealing with here. He's saying, you know what? You got it all wrong. Every person who's an entrepreneur is the same as you, slave. In light of the cross of Jesus Christ, we're all freed from the slavery to sin, the bondage of the law. All of us were under that. The entrepreneur was, just like the servant is, was. And he says, they think that they're better than you because of their economic status, when in fact, the only issue is their spiritual status. And they, like you, are slaves of Christ now. So that's what he's teaching here. You belong to God, in verse 23. Don't allow you to be put in bondage by men with their rules and their regulations. You see that? Their rules and their regulations. Remember, it was the false brethren that came in that was trying to steal the liberty which the, which the apostles told the, uh, the saints in Galatia that they had in Christ and bring them back into bondage. Well, the false brethren were trying to put them under bondage to the law again. Don't, do, don't let them do it. Never be in bondage to men. Their, their false teachings their supposed religious practices, any of that. Here in context, these different factions in Corinth were claiming superiority on the basis of their marital status, their race, or their social status. Please turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, as we close. Galatians three twenty-six. There's no such thing as superiority in the church based on marital status, based on race or ethnicity, based on social or economic status. None of those things matter in the church. None of them. What does Paul say in Galatians 3? You are all sons of God. Some people might brag about whose natural son they are. You know, my father is such and such. He has this to go for him. You know, he's a great businessman. He's a great political leader. He has a lot of money and so forth. That that means nothing in the church. In the church, those things mean nothing. You are all sons of God. What's really better to be a son of somebody who made some money or a son of God who created all things? We're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ, the baptism by the Holy Spirit into Christ forever have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. The externals don't matter anymore. There's neither slave nor free man in Christ. There's neither male or female in Christ. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Therefore, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Back then, believers were pressured to become celibate, leave their partner, divorce an unbelieving spouse, to be circumcised, or to change their social or economic situation, all under a pretext that these things were necessary in order to become more spiritual, that somehow God would be pleased with you if you did them. 
By the way, this sort of thing is still going on today. I have actually witnessed myself, church leaders, encouraging a man to divorce his wife because she was not sufficiently committed to the church. I've seen that myself. Considering women with husbands who aren't believers are somehow inferior. I've seen that. They're put down. They're thought of as lesser. Thinking that a person who's not been water baptized is not a legitimate Christian. I've seen that. That women who were working, that was their condition when they became believers, now have to quit their jobs. That is not what God says. What does he say? He replies to all of these things. Each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he or she was called. Period. All right, let's close in prayer and let's begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. And we understand, too, that there is no better freedom than to live according to being a servant, a slave of Christ, to put everything under the auspices and authority and command of our Lord and Savior. We thank you also, Father, that you've taught us today that we should not, should not become worked up and upset or feeling guilty or insecure or thinking we're any less than anybody else because any of these external situations or conditions, but rather that what you look at is our heart, faith and love. And help us, Father, to see you. Help us to not even consider and keep our eyes on ourselves, but rather on you and your Son. Because that that's the only thing that really matters. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this time, I would like to have the ushers just come forward and pass out the communion elements. Well, now is the time when we bring into remembrance the death of our Lord in preparation to proclaim that death. The death of Christ on the cross was a supreme act of compassion. Compassion. Jesus always had great compassion for anybody who was helpless. In Matthew 9, 36, we see that when Jesus Christ saw the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Notice the people he has compassion on. Those who are distressed those who are dispirited, those who are sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34, we read that as they were leaving Jericho, the disciples in Christ, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. (coughs) The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. They cried out all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, and he called them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. You see, a whole human race were like sheep without a shepherd. There was maximum distress and dispirited people because they could do nothing about their sins. Christ has compassion on all of us because of that situation we're in. Those who are not believers in Christ and even believers at times don't have their eyes unable to see. Unbelievers are unable to see the the gospel and its truth. Believers are sometimes unable to see the Word of God that will free them up from whatever situation they feel in bondage to. What does Jesus do? He immediately touches our eyes and immediately will regain our sight. 
and follow him once again. Walk by means of the Spirit. In other words, in the same way that Christ had compassion for the helpless when he walked this earth, Christ had compassion on us. He knew we couldn't do anything about our sins, so he did it for us. In 1 Peter 2, we read, starting in verse 21, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you and I were healed. That's compassion. By his wounds, we were healed. He had compassion on us to the point where he was willing to be wounded and die and suffer so that we would be healed, that we would have life. That's compassion on us. That's the cross. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you've been returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. God the Father is also rich in mercy. He loves us with a great love. So in compassion, he moved. He was moved in his compassion to save us through his son's death on the cross. But God... Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy and compassion because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. At our worst, he loved us. How much more does he, does he love us now that we're in his son, that we are his children? When we were dead in our transgressions. He had great love of which he loved us. And he did something about it in his mercy and compassion. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you and I have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ, and he actually seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that there would be no doubt that his compassion and his power can do anything. And he's already done that for us. He did that, remember, when we were dead in our trespasses. He said, I will make them alive. I will have them raised with Christ. I will have them seated with me in the heavenly places in my son. All by grace. Compassion leads to grace. Why? Because you have compassion on the helpless. They can't do anything. They can't help you in any way. They can't give you anything. Compassion moves and moves in a gracious way. I'll just give them what they need. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll give them what they need. And not only now, but in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's loving. He's kind. Never forget that. Because if, since he had great compassion on us when we were his enemies, how much more compassion does he have for you and I now that we're his children? He didn't even spare his own son. He delivered him to the cross for us all. How's he not, now that we're with Christ, how's he not going to freely give us all things now? He freely gave us the best he had. He freely put us from death and our trespasses and sins, to seated with him in Christ. How is he not going to be compassionate and loving and take care of everything that we need now? Of course he is. He's going to freely give us all things that we need. See, that's, that's one of the other messages of the cross. The compassion of Christ. That he, that he showed when he died for our sins and that he shows every day. 
Every day His grace pours into our lives. It's another expression of His compassion. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet, because of His love and compassion, He just pours it out on us. Don't forget that. When you consider the death of Christ, also consider that part, that meaning that's there about His great love and kindness and compassion for you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you and I eat this bread and drink the cup, in that act, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. And remember, what matters is not the external sign, but the internal faith. What's in our hearts. And it's so important to understand how much love he has for us, especially when we put ourselves before the cross of Jesus Christ. That will be the way in which we will proclaim his death until he comes back. All right, let's close again in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity, that you've given us the bread and the cup to remind us of the great love that you had for us when we were helpless, and also to understand that his, he has a, we have a new covenant in his blood, that his blood has dealt with all our sins, and that it happened through his body which is the bread, we understand that he, was, he is human and that he in his physical body went to the cross and took our sins on so that we would be with you and that we would be up there with you in Christ in the heavenly places. So Father, we thank you again for your compassion in the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray this by the power of the Spirit, amen. All right, as we close today, I do want to remind you that We will be having Bible study this week, this Thursday, July 11th at 7 o'clock. Continue to want to make sure that you understand that we have a prayer meeting at the end of that and that we welcome your prayer requests. You can do it on our website. We also have a a box in the foyer where you can write them down. And uh, just remember, as far as giving is concerned, that it is also a matter of the heart now. You see, tithing isn't really a matter of the heart, is it? If you're told you have to give 10%, that's an external. But if you're told that when your, your heart will tell you when it is that you ought to be gracious and generous and you will be provided what you need to do it, you see, that's a Christian giving. That's a matter of the heart. And so that is the, that is the way in which you want to give. That's why we don't pass around the plate at the end of the service. Why? Because that's another external, right? You want to make sure you look good. You don't want... I've seen this so many times. People want to make, want other people to think that they're giving, you know. So they might do this, and they might, like, take out a dollar and fold it so somebody can't see the number and put it, you know. That's external. That's not what God wants. He wants the heart. Believe me, God can bless financially this church or that ministry or those people anytime he wants to. What, he, what he's looking for is what's in our heart, the faith that we have when we do it, the love that we have when we do it. 
That's what he's interested in. Okay? Now don't get me wrong. You know, we, have to, we need finances in order to keep this place going. By the way, you know what we also need? We need people. We need, we need more people here. We need people that are here with us. We have a great internet ministry, you know, but we don't see those people. Sometimes I even, I'm not even sure that we should continue to have the TV out there in the other room. Why? Because they're not with us. We, it's important to see people, other Christians. So I just leave that message with you today. We'll be, we'll be talking about outreach again after service next week. And I hope that, that that's something that you have on your heart. All right. If you have any questions about the message today, you very well may because of the subject matter. Come on up. I'll answer any questions that you have to the best of my ability. Let's close. Father, we thank you again today for gracing us out through your Son. We know that your graces are new every morning. We know that the Holy Spirit is pouring your love into our hearts. We know that when we pray, the Holy Spirit is inside us with murmurings too deep for words. And Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the God-man, is at your right hand interceding for us. Even when we can hardly pray, when we're in such pain and difficulty where we don't feel like we have anything at all, we know that you're there and that you take whatever it is that's in our heart, maybe it's pain or difficulty, and you hear it and you act on it. We want to thank you so much for that. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Enjoy this day, and we'll gather together on Thursday.